0: not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, this is Ivi Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And speaking of books, I have two of my own books coming out this spring and summer. Princess Charming is a picture book, which debuts on April 19th, and Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature comes out on July 1st and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com and you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Hi everyone, I need your help. If you love this podcast, you will love my children's book. It's called Princess Charming, and I am really trying to drum up pre-order sales. You might not know this, but before a book comes out is actually a really important time for the whole book's trajectory. So... Please pre-order Princess Charming, which comes out April 19th today. Just stop what you're doing and go do that, please. When it arrives on April 19th, you can give it to a loved one in your life, a niece, a grandchild, a child, a student, a kid walking by on the street, anybody. But if you could do this, here is my offer. If you email me your receipt showing me that you bought the book online somewhere and pre-ordered it... Email info at zibbyowens.com. That's info at zibbyowens.com. And I will pick 10 people to do a special giveaway project award to from my new bonfire merch store, which you should also check out, which is um, the Zibby Owens Media bonfire store where you can get all sorts of cool t-shirts and uh, tote bags and author sayings and all sorts of great stuff. So or did I say? 10 of you are going to get a special care package of your choice from the Bonfire Store. And I will pick at random from all of you who pre-order the book. So if that wasn't clear, go pre-order Princess Charming. Again, it's called Princess Charming. It's my debut picture book. It's really cute and great. And it's illustrated by Holly Haddam. And then after you get the receipt screenshot it or forward it to me at info at and you will be entered to win one of 10 exciting care packages. So go off and order. Thank you so much. Bye. Beth Morey is the author of Delphine Jones Takes a Chance, a novel. She is also the author of The Love Story of Missy Carmichael. Both her books, by the way, have different titles, which is a little confusing. So in the UK, The Love Story of Missy Carmichael was called Saving Missy. And her latest book, Delphine Jones Takes a Chance, is actually called M and Me. And you can decide if you think those are are better titles or whatever. I think they're all awesome. Anyway, Beth is... A TV producer. Now she says she does mostly help with treatments, but she used to work for a long time at RDF Television as creative director of development. She helped create the Secret Life Four-Year-Olds series on Channel 4 and 100-Year-Old Drivers for ITV. She wrote these two novels and also hosts a podcast, which is called one torn every minute. And we discuss this a lot. Welcome, Beth. Thank you for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Delphine Jones' Take a Chance or, as it's known in the UK, M and Me. Correct. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really like M and Me. So why, I mean, not that I don't like this. Why the different titles? What happened?
2: Well, my publisher in the US probably knows better than me. I trust them when it comes to marketing and they just felt that was a better title for the US market. I think from what I've heard that U.S. readers prefer titles with names in more, net, more, the full name. That's what I gather. And they felt quite strongly that that was a better title for the book. So we went with that. Huh. I actually started my own publishing
1: company and we have books coming out starting in January 2023. And I'm thinking to myself, really? I don't think we have any names in any <laughs> of <more> our titles. <laughs> Uh-oh. Anyway. All right. Well, we'll store that little nugget away. Anyway. Okay. Okay. Um, please tell listeners about this book. What is Delphine Jones takes a chance about? And how did you come up with the plot, the narrative, the whole idea for this book?
2: A struggling single mother called Delphine Jones, whose life was derailed as a teenager. Things went off track. She had a lot going for her, but things went wrong. And it's about her struggling to build a better life for her and her daughter, Em. But also in flashback, the secrets and things that she did wrong that caused her life to derail in the first place. And as to where the idea came from, I, it's so hard. I mean, I'm sure you know with the authors you work with. There's no. Sort I shouldn't. Of I shouldn't even. I shouldn't even ask that question. Can- <laughs> One thing, it, it, it's so many different layers and experiences. I wanted to write about education as a power to transform, and I was very interested in single mothers because I admire them so much, what they do, and you know, I wanted to write a companion piece to the love story of Missy Carmichael that dealt with different themes but also offered a similar experience. It was lots of things coming together.
1: Wow. Well, I mean, I feel like her life gets derailed, not derailed, but I think that one of the pivotal moments, of course, is the loss of her mother at a young age. And actually right before you, I interviewed a woman named Jane Peck and right behind her was all this bicycle equipment. And I was like, you know, you have to be really careful because the mother of a dear <laughs> close friend of mine from a previous book just, you know, got into an accident. I'm joking, but I'm not joking because it's like they become so real to me and I was so heartbroken. I hope that's not giving too much away. It didn't come that. I know Right? It's not that far into the book. I feel like I could say that there's mother loss in this in this story. And it felt so real and so sad and how one moment, whether it's loss or just something changing in your life, that one moment she's planning her afternoon with her girlfriends and this and that is really important. And the next, like nothing is important. Like everything has changed just like that. Have you had moments like that? Or are you interested in just exploring the effects? I mean, I feel like we've all had moments that are sort of bifurcating our lives into before and after in some way.
2: Yeah, I think I really wanted to explore that idea. And I think I'm a chronic worrier. And I think I'm often thinking about life turning on a sixpence in that way so I did want to explore it, and I guess when we're talking about inspirations, there was this viral clip that did the rounds a few years ago, it was an American clip actually, it was called The Race of Life, and it was, they they lined up a load of young people for a race for like $100, except that if you had certain things in your life that happened to you, you were allowed to step forward, so if you'd had a private education, if your parents were still together, if you'd never been hungry, you were allowed oh, wow. to step forward, and at the end of the stepping forward, they were like, right, we're gonna run the race. You've all got a chance. But obviously the people who'd had the advantages in life had a much better chance of winning the money. And that really struck me. And I wanted to explore the idea of somebody who started the race out okay, but then just things kept happening to her to pull her back. And it seemed to me that a hugely significant thing would be the loss of a mother, an absent parent, and another parent who's absent as a result of that loss. So in a way she's missing two parents and that just seemed to me to be a profound thing that would derail someone and mean that they couldn't take the opportunities in life that might otherwise be there. The conversation that she has with
1: her dad at the end where he's like you've got to you know keep going you've got to get out like don't let you know have the same thing. It was so moving like that he like knew all of it right like he was fighting he was trying like it's not always what you see on the outside, right? All the interior life of people and what they want and then what they're capable of at different times, like, and how much love can sort of conquer all in a way, right? It's, oh my gosh, really, really meaningful.
2: Thank you. Well, I I think Nathan is a bit of a divisive figure because I think it would be very easy to be quite exasperated with him and quite frustrated with his inability to function. But I never particularly wanted it to feel like one-handed in that way I wanted it to be a bit of balance that while you can think of him as a little bit weak at the same time he's just incapable he's yeah. by grief and there's nothing he can do about it so I wanted it to be a kind of mix of how you feel about it you should feel about ambiguous about him
1: yeah interesting I feel like you mentioned a million books
2: in this book right there <laughs>
1: Like, I just wrote this memoir and at the end, like I mentioned so many books, I put a reading list because I was like, okay, you know, I feel like I'm like, where is your reading list? I know you have a song
2: playlist and all that, but I need a reading list. I should do that. Um, Sometimes there's a there's a I don't know if there's a U.S. equivalent, but we've got bookshop.org where you can. We have it. We have it. And I did one for for Missy Carmichael and I should do one for this as well, because it is it does get quite lengthy. In the end, they it's have quite reading <laughs> It's
1: it's it's great. It's almost like you know some of these books and Shakespeare and uh, you know some of these I haven't read in quite some time. I'm feeling a bit shamed, <laughs> but some uh, you know some moments where you have like Bonjour Tristesse sort of like open and all of them have such meaning. Like I feel like you the the reasons why books came at certain points were so intentional at times? Like, did you, did you do that on purpose or was, am I reading too much into it?
2: No, when books appear, generally there's a message in whatever book is mentioned. And so like with Bonjour Tristesse, I think I, probably Googled for about half an hour to think what would be the book that she would have been reading at that point, because it felt really important. And some of them the books like Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes has, have huge importance in the kind of themes that they suggest that are aligned to Delphine's life.
1: Interesting. Wow. I love it. And of course, there's the importance of teachers, which courses through the book and education and opportunity, the opportunity that the education alone provides, right? As you were sort of saying with this race, but even just for your ability to feel good about yourself. I mean, here she is, Delphine, this like brilliant woman with this brilliant daughter. And she's like, well, you know, it's easy for this rich woman to say, I should get back to school, right? I'm working as... In this cafe and this cleaning job and whatever. And, you know, how do I stop all of this? I won't give anything away, but you know, it, 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 seems so easy for people to say, oh, go back to school. Oh, just do it part-time or whatever. And, you know, you really map out all the constraints and all the things working against somebody from pursuing something that maybe deep down their sort of soul is destined to do, but then life gets in the way.
2: Yeah. I think it is really tough, but I mean, I, it, Delphine and Em wouldn't be able to do it without teachers. I've got a real passion for teachers. I, I really, really admire them. And they're acknowledged in the acknowledgements. And I feel we all had a teacher in our, in our life that were the one that we remember as sort of pulling us up and being the one that we felt connection to or that pushed us a little bit further. And I just wanted to celebrate them. So pretty much everyone in, Del, in the Delphine Jones Takes a Chance is a teacher. And they have tremendous power and significance because I think in real life they do as well. And particularly after the pandemic as well with lockdown, you know, there were a lot of schools that, you know, most schools stayed open during during lockdown because they were educating key workers' children. So they were doing twice as much. They were educating key workers' children and they were providing resources for parents at home. So I just feel like it's, you know, we should really celebrate them and honour what they do for our kids.
1: I totally agree. I feel like you had some like policy suggestions in your acknowledgements. Uh, year, <laughs> yes. um, they should be funded and remunerated properly, acknowledged and championed as a linchpin of our society. Next time you see a teacher dressed up for World Book Day or any day for that matter, give them an elbow pump and tell them they're ace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what can what can we do for teachers? Like what, what should we be doing? Yeah, you know, my dad has this theory where that teachers shouldn't have to pay income tax.
2: Wow, that's very radical and I love it I mean I don't don't pretend to be really knowledgeable about these things but it struck me that 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 you know teachers I don't know about the US situation either but in the UK they're not paid much and the schools are under-resourced and we didn't give them enough money to put in place all the measures that we needed for COVID we just expected them to get on with it and to put themselves on the front line you know without masks and things like that it just felt to me that they weren't being respected and appreciated as much as they should be so I wanted to do that for a starter but I have I also have in the acknowledgements there there's a big thing I've got a big thing about teachers dressing up and whenever I see a teacher dressed up I cry because they don't they don't need to do it it's not part of the job description and yet they do it they dress up for all sorts, you know, you see them dressed up for Halloween and World Book Day. And I just think it's, it seems to me to be symptomatic of how they always go the extra mile. They always do more than they need to do, um, which is, you know, why I love them so much.
1: So true. I cry at the end of every school year with my kids as I'm like hugging the teachers. I'm just like, there's this one teacher that now all of my kids have had, well, three of my four kids have had, and this is my last year with her. And I'm already like every time I pick up or drop off, I'm already in my head like, how am I going to separate from her at the end of this?
2: You know, I'm like so attached myself. Yes. In, in our school, the teachers are sort of like mini celebrities. You know, we, we're all, all the parents pointing them out. And I feel like that's the way we should be with them. Fate them as celebrities.
0: It's absolutely true. You're absolutely right. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
1: I also appreciated the return to basically grade school French in the book (laughs) because I took French all through school. And now of course I haven't like practiced it in 20 years or even more, frankly. I mean, I don't even want to say how many years and she's the same way, right? She's getting back into it. Her, her stopping was quite deliberate when her mother passes away, but how it's not just the language opening up. It's so many things, right. That are opening up for her at that time and language in more ways than one, I feel like are unspooling for Delphine.
2: It unlocks a bit of her memory, a particular thing. And when she and Letty speak French, it's like an intimacy between them that they can say things in French to each other that they couldn't say in English, which felt really important to me. Uh, but that said, I fondly imagined I was really good at French. <laughs> Not, really, but you know, fine, I can do this. And so I wrote it all down. And then when we were doing all the copy editing and stuff, I had to check it. And I got my husband's niece on board, who is French, and it turned out my French isn't nearly as good as I thought. <laughs> it was. And she ripped it apart and we had to put it back together again. So it was a lot harder than I imagined. But I'm I'm really careful. I hope readers will understand that they can read it and they'll either understand it because it's you know basic enough or it's translated immediately afterwards to explain. But also there'll be the odd word that, that you don't know as a reader, that maybe Letty explains. That then mm-hmm. you've yes. learned, you've learned a new word in French, which is quite fun. So you know, I learned yas, which I yes. think means fluty. Yeah, um, so that the odd word peppered throughout, so a reader can be enriched at the that same really, time. As I've already forgotten
1: the one, the word she, the first word she teaches, like dishy. Maybe was it dishy? Oh,
2: yes, Emmanuel Macron is dishy. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, and I have forgotten that word as well. That's terrible. And I, have checked it. I will have checked that it meant.
1: Great. Well, see how much I learned. You know,
2: <laughs>
1: I'm sure I'm not the first to suggest this, but is there any hope of a novel about
2: M as she grows up? I don't. I mean, I never think about sequels particularly. I always think it's sort of done when it's done. M was conceived as a sort of modern day Matilda. Mm-hmm. You know, Goldar's Matilda, and I wanted her to be. She's quite sort of manipulative and ruthless. I, you know, I kind of twisted it a bit. But there's also mentioned a kind of eeriness, like a slightly supernatural thing, which was a, a sort of reference to Matilda. So now you talk about it, I think the thing that I would explore probably is Em's relationship with Dylan. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how long. That relationship would last, but I'm interested in it because he's not her father, but they get on okay he's her teacher and it's sort of i'm I'm quite interested in those sort of slightly unconventional relationships between people who are not necessarily who are kind of at odds so hence delphine's friendship with Letty, who she would never particularly be friends with and starts with kind of an element of self-interest so I suppose. Yeah, I could I could explore M's. It's it's okay. kind of like a, a Nick Hornby ish relationship, Do you know, except with girls. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: And Sorry, that, that is a, well, not even that not even. Yeah. That's the greatest compliment to me because about a boy is one of my favorite books of all time. I just love that book. It's yeah. wonderful,
1: amazing. It was so good. I had him on this podcast. It was like such a...
2: Amazing. Oh, he's, he's the dream. <laughs>
1: amazing. Also, you then wrote a song that is performed by this fictitious band. And then like, that was so
2: cool too. So do you write lots of songs or was this a one-off just to be funny? It was mad. I was just sort of thinking, you know, I couldn't quite let this let the story go. And I'd been thinking about that song, which appears as a snippet in the book. And I just thought, I wonder if I can carry on the song. I wonder how the whole song would look. So I wrote the lyrics and then having wrote the lyrics, I thought, well, it would be quite interesting to hear how it sounds. And so I have a songwriting friend um, who's in a band called Sugarcane. And I said to him, I I wonder if you could write this. I want it to sound like a mix between Nora Jones and Edith Piaf. Mm. And he really took that and ran with it. And then he had a friend who's a vocalist who had a beautiful voice and she sang it. And then um, he'd arranged it. And then we had a friend who was a music producer who put it all together for us. And it was just like a really fun and slightly bizarre thing to go with a book. So if you know, if you want to hear Delphine and the Tiny Pennies in Mer Harbour, <laughs> there you go. It's there. Uh-huh. I loved it. It was so satisfying to like read the
1: book and then find something in real life to echo the book. It was very cool. Okay, wait, just switching gears for a second. You have a hilarious podcast called One Torn Every Minute about the actual nuts and bolts of the indignities of having children, essentially. <laughs> Tell me about the podcast and why. Why
2: are you? Tell me all about it. <laughs> why is a really good question. It's because when I worked in television, after I'd given birth, I pitched a show about childbirth, and I never got it away because you know it's kind of grim and niche. And I thought when I'd left television, podcasting is such an egalitarian world, and you can just do stuff. Mm-hmm. And I had a few friends in the comedy world I knew who had stories to tell. And my husband is a podcasting podcaster and producer himself, so it was a sort of easy setup. And again, it was just like the song, really. We thought we'd just try it. And so I interviewed a series of women about giving birth and it's nothing else apart from that. It's not about parenting or anything like that. It's just about getting pregnant. Once you're pregnant, what that's like. And then, as you say, the nuts and bolts and episiotomies and placenta delivery and guts and gore of the birth process. But... It's kind of playing it a bit for laughs. There are kind of poignant moments in it as well, but mainly it's reclaiming the process through laughter and ridicule because a lot of it is a ridiculous process. And I love it because every story, you you get similar elements, but every story is different and every story is fascinating what happened to women. So I really enjoy doing it. And I might do another series if I can nail down a few more women. (laughs)
1: I love it. It's it's almost like unthinkable that these things happen to us. Like we pretend we're all modern and dressed up and you know the world is spinning so you know everything goes so fast and we're all like doing all these jobs and running the world and all this stuff and yet these you know it's at its at our most primal this is what we do is like birth more people for the world to continue and yet that's the part that gets pushed down and it's embarrassing or we don't discuss it. So we
2: don't discuss it and it's it's about 45 minutes where you can just stop and go, no, this is exactly what happened to me. And I'll say whatever I like and I'll Mm -hmm. tell you all the gory bits and we'll really stop and analyze it from every angle. It's really traumatic for some
1: women. I mean, it's a trauma that they have to like get past. Like some of the childbirth stuff is just out of control. So,
2: Well, I'd be careful about that, you know, with my interviewees because finding the funny in it, I probably would interview someone who'd found it tremendously traumatic i would stick you know we have a fair degree of trauma but it's largely people who feel a bit more comfortable about the process it's not for everyone
1: no it's hilarious i love it i'm like that is genius that's just so great i love podcasts That, yeah, just like what you're saying, that it's like, oh, well, look at this. Why not? I mean, how cool. (laughs) And tell me about all your TV stuff. So tell me, yeah, tell me about you and the TV world and development and uh, the ideas that don't get made and the ideas that do get made (laughs) and all of that.
2: Well I've sort of left it behind occasionally I write treatments for production companies which is always good fun dipping my toe back in the water but I did it for 20 years and I was basically a developer so I came up with ideas I'm trying to think of formats that might have been over in the US because some of them won't will just be UK based I don't know if Secret Life of Four-Year-Olds ever made it over to the US I don't think it did that was basically like a reality soap opera set in a nursery (laughs) of (laughs) four-year-olds it was it was great and that's a very well loved show in the in the uk and it's kind of unusual that i would have developed something that in in the uk is really successful and everyone watched because mostly when i say what i developed people go oh, no no <laughs> not, not heard of that one i developed a show called 100 year old drivers which is as you could guess oh, people who are still driving aged 100 and they're all brilliant characters and it was all a bit hair raising watching them drive And then I developed a show called Sun, Sex and Suspicious Parents, which is where kids who are like 17, 18 going to the Ibiza for the first time Uh are spied on by their parents. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not proud. (laughs) It was really good fun. I loved it and I loved the people, but I guess I'd kind of come to the end of what I could do in telly and I was quite ready to move on to something else. So it was quite useful. The publishing stuff happened. So that's when,
1: so you put that aside and that's when you wrote your first novel. You just decided to go for it. And here we are
2: now on the well, second. A bit of crossover. I was on maternity leave. So that's how I managed it. Yeah. We put us on a nursery two days a week and I, I managed to carve out the time because otherwise I don't think I would have done it. You know, it was incredibly difficult with a full-time job and children. It was, it was really hard. Wow. And so what is your,
1: what are you working on now? Like what's your next thing?
2: Well, talking of plate spinning, I'm writing my third book, which is about that. It's about a burnt out TV executive who just stops one day and decides to do something totally different and go rogue. And then a lot of gets into a lot of trouble as a result. And I just delivered a first draft to my editors. Congratulations. (laughs) We know first drafts are very near the beginning. (laughs) I'm looking forward to uh, all the work I have to do.
1: First draft is a major, major milestone. So that's great. Yes. That's Fun milestone. You have a working title or can you not share?
2: Um, it's called Clover Stops. I don't know if that will be the end like title. It. It's a
1: good title. Not. I like um, it. But
2: that's my working title. So you got the name in
1: there again. <laughs> 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 I'm going to go back changing all our titles today. What advice do you have for aspiring authors?
2: Firstly, If you are writing, then you're a writer and it doesn't take anybody publishing you to make that more true. It is true if you write. And I think a key thing is to just keep going, keep going to the end of the draft, keep refining, keep querying, keep submitting, because I think a lot of what happens to authors comes down to luck and timing. And you never know whether if you send it to one more agent or write one more draft, whether that will be the difference between you not getting a deal and you getting a deal. Mm-hmm. So I think the resilience that you need, which I have from working in telly and getting re- getting rejected all the time, I think is a real quality that people need. So stick at it, would be my advice. Love it. Beth. Thank you. Thank you for chatting
1: today. Thanks for bringing us, uh, Delphine and M and your crazy cast of characters, the passion for education and schools and books and reading, which I share. So it was really fun to read. Um, and thank you for putting up with all my technical issues at the beginning. So thanks. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay. Have a great day. And thanks to your husband as well. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.